Well, good morning. Welcome to church today. Uh, if you are new to NAPNAS, my name is Ken. I'm our youth pastor, and it's a privilege to get the opportunity to speak with you today. And uh, I uh, have a confession to make as we start out this morning. So I don't know if you noticed in the beginning of the bumper video, there's a guy who paints himself into the corner of a, of a room, like he's painted all the way up to his feet, and then you see the wall, like right here, and he's just stuck there. I have actually done that before. Uh, when I was a, a youth pastor in, uh, in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, I decided to take it upon myself to repaint the cement youth room floor from brown to black. And uh, I was there late one night. I had finished the actual paint and was just putting down the clear coat to seal it all in. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just because I wasn't using something that was colorful or not, and it was just clear liquid, I started at the door and worked my way back. And so I found myself stuck against the back wall and literally sat there, stood there for like 10 minutes trying to figure out how do I get out of this? And to this day, I'm sure you can go there and find uh, some footprints along the side of the room as I, as I jumped and skipped out of the room. Uh, so I, I've been there. We've all been stuck, right? We, we've been going through this series over the last uh, few weeks called Stuck. And uh, we've looked at some different ways that we become stuck. We looked at the fact that we can easily become stuck in our past. We can become stuck in the, the things, the, the, the choices we've made, the, the, the things we've done. Um, we can allow them to consume our thoughts and uh, we can really sit there and dwell on those things. Um, but God doesn't want us to dwell on the past. We, we read that passage in Isaiah that, that says, uh, don't dwell on the past, but behold, I'm doing something new. Don't you see it? Uh, we want to be a part of what God is doing that's new in the world. And uh, we don't, we don't want to be stuck thinking about the areas and places that we fall short. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're told in 1 John 1, 9 that, that God is faithful and just. And he will forgive us uh, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So there's no reason to have that shame, to have that guilt of the things that we've done or people that we've wronged or, or situations that we've put ourselves in uh, that we so often just sit and think and think and think about because God's forgiven us from those things. So we shouldn't be stuck in the past. We also discovered that we can become stuck in and of ourselves, um, our habits, our attitudes, things. Uh, uh, we, we looked at that passage uh, uh, from Romans where Paul says, I don't understand it. What what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I end up doing. And, and it's kind of a comical little back and forth that Paul has with himself. But it's so true of all of us. There's so often that we really don't want to, to uh, I don't know, we don't, we don't want to to sleep in. We want to get up early. We want to do our devotions. We want to, you know, like we want to set these things in our lives and we just, for whatever reason, we don't end up doing that. Not only do we not end up doing that, we end up doing the very things that we really don't want to do. And if we're not careful, our habits and our attitudes, uh, we can become stuck in those things. They can become ruts for us. Um, but as we learned last week, as Pastor Chip, uh, Chip shared with us, we can become unstuck from ourselves and we surrender to his power. We embrace his community and are overwhelmed by his love. And today we're going to continue talking about an area that we can become stuck in, uh, but today's is a little different because today's is something actually that we can become doubly stuck in. Uh, and I'll explain that more as we go on. Sam was seven years old. Sam uh, was a part of what you would just consider the, the traditional American family. He had two parents, he had two older sisters. Um, 
they, they were a church-going family. Anything that was going on at the church, they were a part of it. They went to VBS. They went to Sunday school. The kids went to youth group. They, they were just a part of the life of the church. Uh, parents were a part of the leadership of the church. And, uh, and they, uh, his, his parents were, um, his mom was an administrative assistant in a local business. His dad was a professor at a local community college. And you could just say that Sam's life was pretty good. And Sam's family life was pretty good. That is until two weeks before Sam turned eight. Sam uh, began to get sick, and they took him to a, a doctor, and he was diagnosed with pneumonia. And they gave him some antibiotics and different things to take, and they sent Sam home. And they said, you know, we want to see him back in a few weeks just to check on him to make sure that he's, he's doing okay, that the medicine's doing what, they're supposed, what it's supposed to do. And so they went home that first day and started to take the medicine, and Sam began to show some slight signs of improvement. So mom and dad felt good, and, and they just assumed life would continue to go on. The next night, Sam's color began to change, and Sam began to, to, to find it very difficult to breathe. And so they decided to call the doctor, and the doctor said, uh, bring him to my office immediately. Even though it's at nighttime, I'm going to meet you there. And so it was about a 10-minute drive from the house to the doctor's office. By the time they arrived at the doctor's office, Sam was paralyzed completely from the head down. The, the doctor looked at Sam and immediately called 911. 911 came to the scene, loaded him into an ambulance, and took him to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, Sam stopped breathing several times completely, uh, and they were able to, to, to get him to, to breathe again with a, one of the, the compression bags. I'm not calling them the right name, but that's, that's what they're using there. And, and they're getting him to breathe again, and they get to the hospital. They, they rush him inside, and they're on the elevator going up to the floor where they need to be to start to treat Sam for whatever it is that they think is going on. And in the elevator, he stops responding to uh, the, the, the different methods they would use to get him to breathe. So they have to do an, an emergency tracheotomy where they you know, put the, put the port in the neck for the, to help the person to breathe. And uh, Sam immediately goes into a coma. Sam stays in a coma for three months, paralyzed and able to move in a coma. Over the course of those three months, the, the family, because they had to go back to kind of life as, as it was, the girl still had to go to school and the parents still uh, had to work and, and, and do the, the different things they had to do. So they could, they could only be at the hospital with Sam one night a week and then on the weekends. And it began to take a very strong toll on the family. It began to wear them out. It began to, to, to drag them down. Not, not that they were worn out by, by Sam, but just by the circumstances that they were surrounded with. Um, Sam uh, woke up three months later, and, and, and as the family was going to visit him, they noticed multiple times that Sam had stopped breathing again while he was still in his coma. So he had been without oxygen. And, and as he was waking up, they started to realize that that had an effect on Sam. When Sam started to be able to move and be able to talk and communicate, they realized that Sam was no longer Sam. Sam had some permanent things that took place uh, to his brain while he was without oxygen. And uh, life Life was a struggle for Sam. Sam had to learn how to, re, how, how to walk again. He had to learn how to use his hands and motor skills again. And uh, it was just an extremely trying time as, as mom and dad 
tried to, tried to work with him and tried to, Sam, they found out quickly Sam couldn't understand things like sarcasm or um, just, he had no social awareness. So when he was in a room and he thought he was being funny, he was actually insulting everybody in the room. And this happened on a daily basis almost. And Sam's sisters just got to a point where they just couldn't take it. And they, they stopped going to see their brother. And a year to the date that he was admitted or taken to the doctor that one night, he was released from a rehab center almost a year later. He was able to walk. He was able to communicate. But Sam wasn't Sam. And all of this took such a hard toll on Sam's mother that she had a psychotic break and wound up in the hospital herself. And so Sam's father was, was there in the middle trying to take care of Sam, trying to take care of his wife, and trying to, to take care of his daughters that all of a sudden felt distant and remotely removed from the world that once was so happy, that once was so perfect, that once was just as they thought it should be, as they had planned for it to be. And Sam's mother and father began to talk about the fact that, you know what, all these plans that we had for Sam's life probably aren't going to come true. All of these plans of, of him being a, an athlete and him being a, a, an, an academic genius and him uh, just go through all the plans you think and have for your kids. Sam's parents realized that a lot of those were no longer going to happen for Sam. And this took such a hard toll on the mother that after she had her psychotic break, after she came home, she was feeling better, she thought she could go back to work, that it turned out she was in, in much worse condition than she thought, and at work one day she committed suicide. And Sam's family, his dad, his sisters, were left sitting there. And the author that actually knows Sam's family and, and who wrote about this in his book, Imagining Redemption, says this sentence at the end of all of that information. What earthly good can God do here? Today we're talking about being stuck in our circumstances. Your circumstances may not be nearly to the level or the depth or the tragedy of Sam's family's situation. But you're going through situations right now that you, you have no control over. Maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe um, there's an issue with a relationship or a marriage or, or whatever. It's, it, it's all out of your hands. It's just happening to you. And we sit and we look at that and we ask the question, God, what earthly good can you do here? I mean, unless you can transport me out of my life and into a new one, I don't think that, that I can get around this. I'm going to have to continue to walk through this and it's going to be long and it's going to be painful Whatever that, whatever that is for you, uh, I, I just asked this morning, what was the point where you asked that question? God, what can you do for me? When we, uh, when we are going through trials and, and, and tough times and situations, um, it's really easy for us to play the victim. It's really easy for us to to say, you know, I was wronged here. This isn't my fault. This should not have happened to me. This should not have happened to my family. This should not have happened to my child. Um, this shouldn't have happened to my parents. Whatever it is, we play the victim card. And here's the thing. There's actually, um, 
it's actually, there, there is a time and a place for everything. We've been talking with the teens also about uh, this idea of being stuck, and we're talking about being stuck emotionally, and we led the, the teens through uh, um, Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, you know, there's a time for everything, a time, a time to, uh, to steal, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to destroy, a time to build up. Like, he just goes through the whole list, uh, and we talked about the fact that everything, life would be awful if we had no emotion, Right? And so we, we should have emotions, and they serve their time and their place, but we should never get stuck in one specific emotion. Life is not always on the mountaintop, but it's also not always in the valley. We're constantly going through different things. We con- life is constantly changing. And if, when we start to play the victim card, and we start to get stuck in the victim card, uh, we're not living out life the way God intended it or designed it to be. And then after, after we play the victim card, we, then if things continue to not improve, a lot of us will go into this kind of numb state where we just say, you know what? This is just how it's going to be. This is just how it is. This is, this is what my life is going to be like. Uh, I, I, I kind of laugh. I kind of think of uh, Star Wars when I hear that. And C-3PO, if you ever have, have seen the movies, uh, in the very first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, uh, C-3PO finds himself on this desert planet, and uh, he's a robot that's, that's always kind of sharing the bleak side of everything anyway, and uh, he finds himself in some, like, trash heap, and he just says, you know what? He's talking to his, his other robot friend named R2-D2, and he says, this is our lot in life, and, and just kind of resides to this is the end. This is it, and when things don't change, when our, when our circumstances don't improve, it's really easy for us to get stuck in that place. But as we've been talking throughout this whole series, God doesn't want us to remain stuck. We may be stuck in the circumstance. Um, Outside of a miracle, we're probably going to have to go through what we're facing, right? But we don't have to be stuck in all of the emotions and in all of the, the failed plans and the frustrations that go along with it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in Scripture that we could actually go to, uh, to to focus on being stuck. There are a lot of, there are a lot of characters throughout God's story that uh, find themselves stuck, and stuck in a situation that wasn't necessarily their own doing or choosing. Um, we could look at Joseph in the Old Testament and the fact that you know, he had these dreams of being a, a ruler and being over his brothers and, and leading uh, his family. And I have no doubt that as a boy, he probably sat around a campfire with uh, his dad Jacob and heard stories about how God provided for Abraham and for Isaac. And, and the fact that, um, that God had made this promise to their family and that his dreams probably, he probably felt to some degree like they lined up with that only to find himself sold into slavery by his brothers, only to find himself uh, falsely accused in the house of Potiphar, only to find himself thrown into the king's prison. And the king's prison is the place where they put people just to rot. They don't care. They don't worry about a trial coming up to get you out. They just put you there. And that's where Joseph, at one point in his story, found himself. So we could look at that, and we could, we could consider how uh, Joseph dealt with those circumstances. We could also look to probably the person we all think of from Scripture uh, when we're talking about struggling in difficult circumstances, and that is 
Job, right? We all think of the situation where, where Job had everything and had kids and had property and, and, and a house and cattle and all this stuff. And, and one day, just because God and Satan get together and have this conversation, uh, Job loses everything, and including he, he loses the life of his kids and he loses his property and his cattle and his land and all this stuff. And we find him at one point sitting in a pile of ash, scraping boils off of his off of his body, and his wife is saying, why don't you just curse God and die? That is a situation uh, that uh, I don't think any of us would sign up for, and Job didn't sign up for that. And we could look at Job's life, and a lot of people do when it comes to circumstances. We could also look at Paul. Paul dealt with all kinds of stuff, imprisonment, uh, snake bites, and, and fights with other people about about how we should do things, and, and, and Paul constantly just found himself struggling uh, with, with certain circumstances in his life. He, he didn't have control over the Roman government. He didn't have control over the other Jewish leaders and people, and, and so Paul found himself here quite often. We could look at how he dealt with that, or we could look at even Mary, the mother of Jesus, who uh, had an angel show up to her one night and told her that she was going to give birth to a son, and the son was going to be born not from an earthly father, but from God himself, from his Holy Spirit, which sounds great, but Mary has to then turn around and walk back out into the world that doesn't understand that, and they have to, they have to look at this little, this, this young woman who's becoming an adult who is pregnant outside of marriage, and even though Joseph decides not to divorce her, but to take her on as his wife anyway, there's still those looks there's still, she still would have to deal with that. And we could consider how Mary handled that. We could even look at Jesus himself, who finds himself kneeling in a garden one night and asking God, if there's any way you could take this cup from me, do it. It was a circumstance that Jesus was heading into that, that is one of the worst things that, that we could face, sheer torture while being completely innocent. We could look at all of those situations and all of those characters, and we can consider all those things, but this morning I want us to look at somebody that probably none of us thought of. And I want us to look at the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't know much about the prophet Habakkuk other than what we find out in the three chapters of his book in the Old Testament. We know that he is a prophet. We know that he lives in Israel uh, around the time of the exile. Uh, and we know that he, um, uh, he, he lives near Jerusalem, has, has a connection to the promised land. And this is, this is where, this is the first thing we hear from Habakkuk in chapter 1. Uh, I'll start in verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The event that Habakkuk is complaining about to God in this very moment is the very beginning of the exile. If you're unaware of what the exile is, it's, just, it's a time in the history of the Israelite people where after they had fallen and failed God time after time after time after time, the only thing God had left to do was to hand them over 
to the world, to, to no longer uh, step in and intercede for their behalf and let those who are around them uh, come in and, and essentially do their worst to the Israelites. And what that was, was exile. See, they figured out that to, to take over, completely take over a country and to, to bring in people to try to keep order and to, to do all this was, was really tough. So the, the Babylonians came into Israel, and instead of, instead of just uh, taking it over, be, defeating their army, taking the leader away, or killing them, or do whatever, uh, they actually came in, they did defeat the army, but they would take away all of the leaders, they would take away all of the uh, scholars, all of the critical thinkers, they would take away um, the, the, the resources, the crops, the, everything. They would come in and they would remove all that. So all that was left was just a shell of, of what was. They don't have enough real resources to continue to be a major threat to Babylon. They don't have the, the leaders to rise up against them. They're just kind of in existence. They're, they're helpless. They just are there. And the Babylonians did this really well. Israel was not the first country they had done this to. They were well known around the world for doing this very thing and taking over countries and nations this very way that they're doing. And Habakkuk is beginning to see this take place. And he comes to God and he's saying, God, why is this happening? We're calling out to you and you're not coming to help. What is going on? And, and God responds, and, and I don't have time to read all of this to you, but you can read God's response, and basically he doesn't make Habakkuk feel any better. God's response to Habakkuk is, they're going to come. They're going to do exactly what you think they're going to do, and it's going to be worse than you actually think it is. They're going to take over Israel, and they're going to be mighty proud of it. And they're going to do a really good job, is basically what, what God kind of relates to Habakkuk in his response. And Habakkuk comes back in, in chapter 1, verse 12, and says this, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Again, we find, we find Habakkuk stuck in what we just talked about. He's playing the victim card. He's saying, you know what? This is just how it's going to be. You're God. You're going to let this happen. And we're just stuck here. But what we find out from Habakkuk, what we're about to find out from Habakkuk, is that, again, that's not God's intent. God wants us to become unstuck from our plans. He wants us to be unstuck from our, those feelings, those emotions that go along with it. Because guess what? Life is still going on. In the midst of all of our circumstances, in the midst of all of our frustrations, life continues to go on. God, as we read in, in Isaiah a few weeks ago, God's still doing new things. And we still need to be looking around to see what God's doing and not stuck in our own circumstances. When we, get be, when we become stuck in our circumstances, we cannot see what God is doing around us. Uh, when, uh, when, when Gabby and I got married, we uh, uh, were looking kind of at the situation. I was 
a youth pastor at a church in Norman, Oklahoma, and, and I was as full-time as I could possibly get there, just with the church and the resources that they had. I, I was the youth pastor. I was the administrative assistant. I mowed the church lawn. Um, I was, like, partially the custodian. I, I did whatever I could to possibly get close to just being full-time enough for a young, single college guy to make it, and I could. But when Gabby and I started dating and then when we got engaged and I had to begin to think how, how to do life with more than just one person, uh, we're both not going to sit around and eat you know, ramen noodles. We've got to figure this out. So I, I, I started praying and asking God, God, what, what would you have us do? And um, just through a connection that Gabby and I both had, uh, we heard about a church in Broken Arrow. And we decided, well, God, because everything's going the way it is, uh, we're going to go and just interview and see what you would have us to do. And so we go and interview at, at this church, and uh, we're, we're talking to them about starting immediately after we come back from our honeymoon, and we're, we're going and looking through everything. Uh, one thing I was told when I was going through college was that uh, as, a, as an associate pastor, uh, when you go and you interview, um, it's important to, to, to get to know the congregation. It's important to get to know the area that you work with, whether it be worship or youth or, or whatever you might be. Uh, the, the associate pastor of, but the most important thing is your relationship with the lead pastor. And you have to ask this question, do I want my life to look like his? Because whatever, um, wh- whatever they're, if, if they're here at church 24-7 and they're, um, you know, just sacrificing all their free time to do things here, they're going to probably have that expectation of you. So you kind of have to think through all that stuff. So I was, I was asking all those questions as we were going through this interview process, and um, the, the senior pastor that we interviewed with was excellent. He wanted to make sure that we had family time. He wanted to make sure that uh, we, were, we were well taken care of. He stopped in to see us when we were moving and, and doing all these things. We, it, was, it was just playing out perfect. And I just had this, this vision or this plan that, that we were going to be here for a long time, and we, uh, we were just going to to excel here, excel here, whatever that, whatever that meant, whatever that looked like, I just kind of envisioned that. This was going to be great. And the first six, seven months were great. And then the senior pastor comes to staff meeting one Sunday, uh, or one Monday after Sunday, and he said, guys, I have something I need to tell you. Uh, a, a church called us in, in Houston, and we really feel like God's telling us to go. And if, if you're unaware of just how the Church of Nazarene works, I'll kind of fill you in just real quick. When a senior pastor resigns, the staff has to resign too. And then uh, the, the board then just chooses to, to keep them on during the transition period. And, and a lot of you who went through the transition here know kind of how that whole process works. Um, and so that, that happened, and, and Gabby and I kind of had to make the decision, okay, do we want to stay here? Do we feel like, you know, things are still going to, to go well? Do we feel like we're going to work with another, uh, a new senior pastor? We've only been here. Uh, by the time the senior pastor left, it had been 11 months. It hadn't even been a full calendar year. So we had to, we had to ask ourselves, well, is, is this where we, we still feel like we're supposed to be? And so after some consideration, we said, yeah, we're, we, we feel like this is where we're supposed to be. We feel like God still led us here. We, we, we are here for a reason. And so uh, the new senior pastor uh, came in uh, three or four months after the last one left, and um, things got off to a really rough start and, and didn't really get better. And it wasn't all of the, the, the lead pastor's fault. He was from Florida, and, and Oklahoma is not Florida, if you're unaware. 
Um, not as many beaches in, in Oklahoma. Um, and, and, his, and his family that came with him just struggled. And it was just, it was just a rough situation. And, and they left after one year. And so what started out as this perfect picture of a, of a place in ministry for Gabby and I quickly turned into this rotation of leaders. And, and you know that when you go through a transition, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to keep everything moving. It's difficult to keep uh, everybody engaged and, and, and excited. And, and so we were going through that as the staff that stayed behind after each pastor left. It was, it was a difficult thing. And so the next senior pastor came in and and uh, after a year of working with him, we decided that uh, we just wanted, we just were, were going different directions in ministry, and we just decided it would be best uh, for us to, to look for something different. So four years at this church that I thought was going to be this, could be this, this lifetime ministry church, four years we left after three different lead pastors, and just kind of we, we were at that point. We were at that numb point. We felt like we had just resided, maybe this is just always what ministry is going to be like. Maybe that, that vision, that plan that we had just wasn't, it's just not going to be like that. In all of our circumstances, we deal with plans that fail. We deal with our, with our realities not turning out the way that we wanted, the way that we hoped and when we, when we find ourselves in a situation or a circumstance, it's so often the feelings, the frustrations, all that stuff don't stem from the circumstances themselves. It, don't, it doesn't stem from somebody getting sick. It doesn't stem from um, um, you name it, whatever that situation is for you. It doesn't stem from there. It stems from our plans that we had before how we thought it would be, and the fact that it didn't turn out that way. And Habakkuk is sitting there talking to God at this moment, and he's saying, aren't you going to do anything? Aren't you going to say, like, this is the promised land. Like, we, we, we've celebrated you leading us into this land and taking over this land and becoming your people. We celebrate it multiple times a year with festivals and all kinds of stuff. These were the plans. It was just supposed to continue like this. Why are you now doing something different? And we have to, we, we all come to that point in our circumstances. And by the end of chapter 3, at the very end of <clears throat> his book, he's, he's praying to God. And Habakkuk has, has found out some things about circumstances and becoming unstuck from them. Uh, I'm going to read this and then we'll discuss it uh, briefly before we, before we close. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to tread on the heights. We can tell that Habakkuk has become unstuck from the, the complainer that he was in the very beginning to this person that we, we hear talking now. The first thing that Habakkuk did was he embraced, um, he embraced this new reality. He got a real picture of what life was going to be, and he accepted it. He says, no longer is, is this the land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be 
It's going to be taken over. There are going to be no crops. There will be no grapes on the vine. No cattle, no food. That's going to be the new reality. And when we accept the new reality, then all of a sudden, uh, things can become different because it kind of works like the, oh, the, just the backdrop of a painting. If you can picture with me for a moment just the Mona Lisa. I'm just going to pick one out of a famous painting out of there. The Mona Lisa, it's, it's a, a lady with an Italian countryside behind her, uh, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And if you can imagine, our, we create the backdrop of our own circumstance, of our own painting. We create that with, those, with that failed reality. To the point where the Mona Lisa that's standing in front of that backdrop will look really weird, different. Like when, when, when she's there and maybe wearing a t-shirt rather than what she's wearing in the actual painting. When we don't accept reality, we're like the Mona Lisa wearing a t-shirt in front of the Italian countryside. We don't, we, it, we're going to continually butt heads with what didn't turn out to be. What's not, that context that's standing behind that painting is completely different and until we accept it, it's never going to work out. It's ne we're never going to be able to move on from, from the circumstance that's in front of us. We're never going to be able to embrace the new reality until we let go of the old one. Secondly, uh, we're going to make sure that we need to embrace what I call yet living. If you notice in that whole passage here at the end that I just read, 17 through 19, there's the most important word in the entire passage is the three-letter word at the beginning of verse 18, yet. By saying yet, Habakkuk embraced yet living. And he said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of how things didn't turn out, regardless of what is the real reality, yet I'm going to rejoice. Because guess what? God is still God. And that's what we miss when we become so stuck and so focused on our situation. We miss out on the fact that God is still God. He's still the God that created you and me. He's still the God that loved you and me. He's still the God that sent his son to die for you and me. He's still good. And even though things didn't go our way, even though we're frustrated, even though we seemingly can't... Um, can't do the things we hoped we could. God is still who he says he is. God is still good. And Habakkuk realizes this. And you can go back and kind of look over his responses to God as we get up to the end of chapter 3, and you can kind of see that. He kind of says that God is the Holy One, that God is, um, that, that, that God is the God who uh, he told them about long ago through, through the, 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 their forefathers and through the prophets. And that is still who God is. The circumstances that are taking place have nothing to do with the fact that God has changed or different. God is still the same. So because God is still the same, God can then create new realities for us. We forget that in the very beginning, God's very first attribute was that he was the creator. And God can always create something new. And when we let go of the way we hoped things would turn out, we can then focus on the new reality that God can create for us. And that is yet living.
And then the final thing that, we can, that, that happens when we uh, can become unstuck from our situations is that we let God equip us uh, with new things, new tools to help us out to get through um, the situations we find ourselves in. In this, in this passage, he, he talks about getting the feet of a deer so that he can tread on the heights. He's realized that the situation's different, so different things are needed. And when we embrace this yet living and we, we declare that God is who he says he is, then God can then equip us to handle what the circumstance really is. Not the failed plans, but what's really standing in front of us. And when we, when we do those things, we, become, we can become unstuck. No, we're still stuck in the circumstance. We're still having to walk through the trials. However, we're armed with a new sense of reality. We're armed with the same God who has always been there, and he can then equip us to, do, uh, to, to operate in this new reality. Uh, going back to the story of Sam, that's what happens for Sam's father. As Sam continues to grow older and, and he's, he's going from, from different place to school to, to all these different things that are trying to help him, that are dealing with his behavior, one day Sam's father stops in uh, to a church that was just on the way to, to wherever he was going to visit Sam um, uh, at, at one of the behavioral schools that he found himself in. And he decided to stop and just to... Just to just to hear what God had to say to him that day. And he stopped in, and while he was sitting in the back row of that church that he'd never been to before, the church prayed for his son from the platform. And when he looked up, he actually saw the neurosurgeon that came in to work with his son. And he had been following what had been going on with Sam ever since that moment. And that day, he stood up and he asked the people to pray for, for Sam. And Sam's father realized that, that not, only, not, only did, uh, not only was God who he said he was, but he has placed us in this new reality with people who love us, with people who care for us. It's not all as it appeared to be. It's not as bleak and as dark as it appeared to be. And so as he began to just accept this new reality, he's, he was an academic guy, so he would look forward a lot and he would make plans a lot. And when he let go of all of that and he started just to live day to day, uh, you know, Scripture tells us not to worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. He embraced that, and he just started to live day to day, and he took each new challenge that came with his son and with his daughters. Uh, he, he embraced that. And because he did that, God then began to give him uh, insight to how he could not only make it through with his own family through this situation, he began, he started a nonprofit that began to help others who are going through obviously not the same situation because Sam's situation was very, um, very much so an individual situation. It wasn't something that a lot of people were going through. But a lot of people were struggling with circumstances and we're dealing with medical issues and, and how, do you, how do you make insurance companies cooperate with hospitals and how do you navigate all the resources that are available to you? Sam's father, because he went through everything that he went through with Sam, he knew all that. And he was able to, to then uh, create a nonprofit that would help families go through that journey together. And those are all new tools that he wouldn't have had had he not embraced the new reality. So this morning, I, I know that we've come in and we all have things that we're facing. Either we all have things that we're facing or we have faced things already or we know things are coming. 
We, we all kind of fit in one of those areas. So this morning, as, as we close, I just want us to take a moment and just contemplate, where are we at on that spectrum? Um, have we embraced a new reality? Or are we still stuck in the failed plans? Are we still frustrated that things didn't turn out the way we wanted them to? Are we still feeling like the victim? Or have we embraced yet living? Have we been able to stand up and say, even though all that stuff happened, God's still God. God's still the God who created me, who's in, who is ultimately in control of my existence. And I'm going to rejoice him today because that's who he is. Have you, have you been somebody who's received uh, those, new, those new tools to operate in your new reality? Maybe you, maybe you are coming in on a high because you're coming out of one of those circumstances and you can look back and you can see God's fingerprints all over it. This morning, we're, we're, all, we're all there. And so I, I, we're going to sing a song and this first part of the song, we're, we're going to sit back. And I want us to just think, sometimes when we sing and we close out a service with, with song, um, it's really easy just to stand up and sing the words and, and then to leave. And I want us today, before we leave, to really contemplate where we are. And the altars are still up here. There's still prayer cards on them. If you would like help praying through something, a circumstance you're going through, the staff want to join you in that. So you guys can still come up. You guys can still write that out. You can put it in the basket, leave it unfolded. If you want us to help pray through it with you, uh, leave it unfolded. If you want to just keep it between you and God, but you want to you tell him how you're feeling at this very moment, fold it and put it in there. We'll pray over it um, as a whole. Um, and we want to join you in that journey. But this morning, we're all somewhere in, in, on that spectrum. And I just want us to take some time to think about it. And uh, after a moment, they'll ask us to stand. And kind of when we do that, I want it just to be a semblance of us embracing that yet living, standing and saying, today, regardless of what I'm facing, I will rejoice in the Lord.